Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today's lesson, the fifth in this Discipleship University class, is the final lesson for this class season. We have been looking into the heresies that exist in the church, and class teacher Doug Brady has done a wonderful job in finding so much information that will help us as committed Christians to show others the error of so much that is encircling our Christian life. Today's lesson is titled, Interfaithism and the Harbinger of Darkness. The Discipleship University is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each spring and fall, there are many classes available to our congregation as we search the scriptures for more information and to strengthen our Christian beliefs. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and find a seat. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We're going to talk about two topics today. I've tried to combine two to get as much in as possible. Interfaithism, and then we're going to talk about female deity. Some of you may think, well, what in the world is that? I mean, uh, up until really doing much studying on this, I thought the only kind of concept of female deity was that I was married to a goddess. But uh, I think we need to really look uh, more laudable. But looking and starting out with interfaithism, it's the plan or the idea of interfaithism is to say we have all this conflict between these various religious groups. Why can't we just have peace? If we can just have peace, the world will be so much better. And so we want to try and bring peace uh, through a movement of interfaithism and joining everybody together. Besides that, we all worship the same God. Now, that's either a very worthy or laudable goal, or it's a poison to men's souls and a bar of any chance they may have to disentangle themselves from the enslavement of sin. Which is it? We're going to talk about that. But in researching this, I found a guy named Colin Wilkes who really sets out well, but who really sets out this concept of interfaithism and what it's all about. But before we start, let's pray. Father, as we come together to talk today, I pray that the things that I'll say will be what you want said. And I pray that, or not let me allow me to have a spirit of timidity or fear, but one of power and of love and of self-control. I pray, Father, that you will fill me and empower me and direct me as to what you want me to say. And don't let me do anything to steal any of your glory, because the glory all belongs to you. But help us to understand, Father, the insidiousness of Lucifer and the things that he does. Help us to realize how wicked and evil he and those who follow him are, whether they know it or not. Help us, Father, to learn to be the kind of believers who stand up for what's right 
and who refuse to compromise with the world on spiritual issues and values. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. This guy, Colin Wilkes, wrote a piece, and I found it, and we were searching it, and I've got a bunch of quotes I want you to read with me. Religion has been with us since we first became human. Now, I would agree with him that... No, I would just disagree. Because religion is not what Jesus Christ is about at all. Jesus is about relationship, not religion. You see, religion is man's attempts to get to God. Relationship was God coming, trying to establish something with man, which is what is reality. Religion is not. But notice also what he says here. It's very telling. Religion has been with us since we first became human. What is he saying there? Evolution. He's assuming that we, and you're going to see that in some other things that he says. And so, what was evolution's purpose in the start? Explain away God. There we have no need for God. God isn't, doesn't exist. And so he's looking at it that way. So what is the subject of religion as far as he's concerned? Nothing real. It's just for the psychological needs of human beings. Or as he puts it, human animals. Let's look at the next quote. The uniquely human need. Now notice that. See, uniquely. Well, unique from whom? Well, you'll see. The uniquely human need to which religion uniquely ministers stem from the fact that as humans, we have been alienated from the natural world of instinctual purposes in which non-human animals exist. Now you notice, so there's two types of animals here. Non-human animals and human animals. That's what you are, you're an animal. But you've gotten away from your instinctual purpose, whatever that was that you evolved for, and as a consequence have had to infuse our extra instinctual existences what does that mean? Well, that's the way he can talk and sound really smart. With extra instinctual purposes and meaning. Notice how he repeats himself. However, while religion emerged in human history as a solution to the uniquely human problem of being human. Now you notice, you have a problem. And your problem is, you're human. That, that's your problem. And it's unique to us, but there we were human. Uniquely problem being human, other uniquely human problems emerged in the wake of the solution it provided. That is the solution religion provided. And the most obvious of these was the problem of inter-religious conflict. Because we no longer recognized ourselves as an animal that was instinctual and simply lived on our instincts, we needed religion to help us with this problem we created for ourselves. And when we created religion, notice we created religion, in order to solve this problem, well then we've just spawned other problems, in particular interreligious conflicts. The fact that different groups of humans developed different religions or religious solutions to the uniquely human problem of being human did not immediately result in what might be termed as genuine interreligious conflict. Now we're going to see where he points the finger in just a minute. It was not until certain groups of humans started believing that their gods, or more particularly their God, 
Now remember, he's not talking about religions in general now. He's talking about specific ones, the ones that are causing the real problem here of this inter-religious conflict. Or more the point, their God was the only God that the potential for genuine inter-religious conflict emerged in human history. And as my emphasis on God singular is intended to highlight, it was the emergence of monotheism that triggered the emergence of genuine inter-religious conflict. So, what is the problem? Monotheism. If we had polytheism, we wouldn't have this problem, he's saying. But we have it because this type of religion emerged, but now it's just not monotheism. That's not the only problem. Let's go on, or the real problem. But it was not the initial and insular Judaic form of monotheism that triggered it. It was the subsequent and all-embracing Christian and Islamic forms that emerged from the Judaic form. For where the Jews believed that one true God was their God and theirs alone, well, that's not a problem. The Christians and Muslims believed that the one true God was everyone's God, and thus the God that everyone should believe in. That's the problem, and if you're part of the Christian faith, then you're half the problem. The Christian and Islamic monotheists both believed that their own respective conception of the one true God was the one true conception of the one true God, and thus the one true conception that everyone should believe in. And finally, the interfaith movement aims to diminish the potential for interreligious conflict in the modern world, promoting interreligious harmony. Now, isn't that what we want? Harmony. Well, is harmony bad? No. Is peace bad? No. But you always ask, whenever someone wants to suggest you need harmony or peace, at what price? And that's where we have to come to understand what is really going on here, as Mr. Wilkes doesn't want to tell us. Let me give you an example of the interfaith movement that I found, just I thought was rather evidencing. It was June 8, uh, 2014, that the Vatican held an interfaith service where Catholic priests, Jewish rabbis, and a Muslim imam came together to pray for world peace. There's nothing wrong with world peace. Does Jesus want world peace? Is Jesus going to bring us world peace? Yes, he is. But they're praying for world peace. Now, these people all came into this prayer meeting, and it was videoed, and the prayers had to be submitted ahead of time so that they could check out what was being said. And everybody did. But when the imam turned to pray came, he went off script. And he recited Surah chapter 2, verses 284 to 286 in his prayer, a part of which calls for Allah to grant Muslims victory over infidels. Now, you know what infidels means. Non-Muslims. Uh, his prayer was in Arabic, so most of his non-Muslim audience had no idea what he said. But, and that part of his prayer was later edited out of the video after it was discovered. Why this detour... If what was a gathering united for truth, did this gathering bring any peace? No. You know, this is uh, the kind of statement that gets people in trouble, certainly politically, even religiously. 
of those prayers that were being offered, how many of them would you believe were even being heard by God the Father? Is there any prayer to God the Father that is ever heard by Him that doesn't come through Jesus Christ? Because He is the one mediator between God and man. You can't get to God except through Jesus. What did He say in John 14, 6? He says, For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through Me. Now, you say, well, that's awfully exclusive. Well, that's the truth. You see, if you're the creator, you have the right to set the rules for your creation. The creation doesn't get to say, no, I don't like those rules, we're changing them. They may say that, but they're going to have no effect. Because the creator is the one who sets the rules. Let me share with you something else here. We need to ask this question again, what really is interfaithism? Interfaithism is a blasphemous belief that all must coexist to gain peace. You see, interfaithism, if it's really going to work, requires the twisting of everyone, every faith's known text to try to get a compromise and an amalgamation. Yes? How are we able to coexist if we have to compromise ourselves to coexist with somebody else? We become no longer what we were, but we become simply some amalgamation of something. If you think of it this way, you're going to have something good that's water, something not so good called strychnine. If you compromise them, that is, put them together, what do you have? Something that's going to kill you. Even if there's just a small amount of that arsenic or strychnine in there. Now, you see, interfaithism will tell you, oh no, we believe in Jesus. But the Jesus that they believe in is a mystical corporate Jesus, not the true and only uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God. You see, if we allow interfaithism to run its course, uh, we used to call this the ecumenical movement, we don't call it that anymore. If we allow it to run its course, we will be forced into a one-world religion. Is there any plans for a one-world religion in our world? Oh yes. Whose plans are those? Antichrist, who's run by Satan. So, interfaithism is really a threat to a peaceful... Yes, because it always goes to the lowest common denominator, doesn't it? Exactly, you're exactly right. And that's where it goes. Interfaithism is a threat to peaceful society, not an answer to one. Now, I do agree that it's, it's important, I think, for us to understand to a degree, what other faiths believe. Because we need to understand that so that we can share with them the truth. I've studied Islam, and I've studied some others, but for the purpose of being able to share with them the real truth. And to be able to know what they spit back at you so that you have full knowledge of it already. Yeah, so you can deal with it. caught off guard. You know, uh, there's a lot of these, for example, and you may have run into this, where somebody will come to your door who's maybe a Jehovah's Witness or maybe a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And if you don't know how to respond to the things they say, it's they, what they say sounds very persuasive. But you have to know. I remember I did what I call an internship 
into Mormonism because I lived with Morgan one year when I was uh, at law school. And I would pick his brain and get him to tell me all this stuff. And he didn't like having to tell me some of it, especially when I said, David, isn't it true that Jesus had a brother and his name was Lucifer? Uh, we don't talk about that very much. I said, well, let's talk about it. I, I want to understand. Well, you know, Jesus got picked to be the Savior and Lucifer didn't make Lucifer real mad. And I said, well, now, isn't it true and doesn't it say in the Book of Mormon that Adam was really the father of Jesus with Mary? Where are you finding this stuff out, is what he said. <laughs> I just wanted to confirm it's true. Well, I think that's true, but I'll check for you. He never came back on that. But anyway, we need to understand that understanding other people's religious beliefs is, is not wrong. But we should never be willing to change the truth in order to compromise, to promote peace, or to tolerate. Now, see, what they say is, they want, all I want you to do is tolerate me. You, I have a right to be tolerated. But you see, their definition of tolerate means different than your definition of tolerate. And many times their definition of tolerate changes. It starts out, you just ought to let me be able to have my own beliefs and not try and say that mine are wrong. Then, you're going to tolerate me, you're going to believe that my beliefs are just as valid as your beliefs. And then, my beliefs are superior to your beliefs. And I will force you to accept that if you don't. And so, what are true believers in Christianity now facing? Well, we're living in a Romans 1 culture. And one of the things we find, you're going to find in our culture now in America, there are virtually no boundaries being set anywhere. Literal or figural. No boundaries on our borders, for example. No boundaries on what we can do sexually. Well, there is right now, isn't there? You know, I read an article about 10 years ago, Gary, and it was talking about the growth of the sexual revolution in our country. And it says, everything has been accepted that we want except two things. But they're coming. And I thought I had an idea what they was going to say as I was reading through the two things he mentioned that haven't been accepted yet but are coming. One, pedophilia. He didn't describe it like that. Being able to love underage people. And bestiality. And if you look at the Amorites, back who God told Israel to destroy, those were two of the main things they were doing. Besides, they couldn't have abortion, so they would just take the baby after it was born and throw it into the ovens of Moloch. Those were the three things that really caused their sins to be full. And God to say, destroy them all. And those are coming to our nation. And I don't know this for certain, but I would bet that if you got on internet right now, you can see videos of those things. It's just horrible where our nation is going and what we're doing. Now, there's another thing that, that's going on, and I want to give you some example of this compromise and where it, it comes. The Church of England now their congregations are declining. And so they're trying to figure out what they're going to do to help boost attendance. And so they have started training some of their clergy to create a new, quote, pagan church, close quote. 
pagan church. Now that sounds like an oxymoron to me, but pagan church where Christianity will be at the very much in the center of things. But what's on the fringes? Well, I don't know. I didn't look any more onto that. Then there is this amalgamation of the two monotheistic religions that are the worst problems, Christianity and Islam, into Chrislam. And Chrislam is starting to become important. And it's a mixture of apostate Christianity and Islam. Now, notable Christian author Rick Warren spoke favorably at the 2009 Islamic Society of North America upholding this fraudulent mix. In fact, uh, there was a Yale Covenant document signed by 138 Muslim scholars and clerics claiming that Christlam, amalgamation of Christianity and Islam, share core common ground and both should ask forgiveness of the all-merciful one for how they've treated each other. Now, some Christians reason that interfaithism, that is worshiping and praying together with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, animists, to be the common God of humanity is a noble idea. Are we really all worshiping the same God? The Bible says no. If you look, for example, in Isaiah 43, 11, it says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. In the scriptures, as God is speaking now through the prophet Isaiah, and this is God speaking, is he saying there's any other gods? No. That's why he said you shall have no other gods before me. There are no other gods. Now, will there be other entities that try to call themselves gods? Sure. But are they real? Has there ever been a battle of gods before? Can you win? Egypt. Egypt. And in Egypt, there were the wise men, you can say, or the Chaldeans or, or magicians of Pharaoh. And there was God's man, Moses. And it started out two to one. Did Moses mind the odds? No. One plus God is more than anyone needs. And Pharaoh's magicians were defeated. Another battle was up on Mount Carmel. Yep. Dagon, but let's, uh, Mount Carmel. Now, the score there in, on Mount Carmel, do you know what it was? It was one to nothing. What's this? Why one to nothing? Well, there was a forfeit. Baal didn't show up. Elijah slew all the priests of Baal after 900 priests and priestesses of Baal were killed that day by one man. And then he had the strength to beat a chariot back to Samaria. But let, let's go on. You know, you think about it. Having a sword and killing 900 people, that's a lot of work. And I don't know, it would be, maybe he's a little stouter of heart than I am. I would have a hard time. Maybe that's part of our problem. We don't know how to stand up as much as we should. But you see, the Lord God denounces gods of other religions, including Allah, as imposters who actually represent Satan or demonic followers. That's what God said. Because sometimes these quote-unquote gods can do some supernatural things. Will that happen in the end times? Oh yeah, you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the Antichrist is performing all kinds of signs. And people are going to think he even rose from the dead, came back from the dead. Look at these two passages. All the gods of the other nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Or down here in Deuteronomy, 
they, that pagans, sacrificed unto devils, not unto God. Now, is Moses pulling any punches in, in, in Deuteronomy about who these gods are from? No, he's not. Moses is not known for pulling punches. But it's often said that interfaithism would help unite all the people of the world and bring it together. This line of argument is deception. Regretfully, the word unity has been so misused nowadays that it's almost lost its real meaning. Gary? Deuteronomy 32.17, he's actually talking about Israel. Israel, not the pagans, right. but they are worshiping pagan gods, right? right. And then once they start worshiping pagan gods, I mean, they're not God's to, people anymore. Daniel and Ezekiel, because God's people are sacrificing the devils and not God. Right. So they're participating in paganism. Yeah. And that's the reason I put that there to get the concept. This involved paganism. It was people who were known as God's people, but they turned their back on God. Well, we were called, originally almost all of the, pagan, all of the Christians were Jewish. The first five to ten years, but they called us infidels. And they thought we were uh, blasphemers and should be killed. You know, Paul was trying to kill us. Well, right, but, I'm, but Jesus was very bad to the Jewish people because... Uh, he had a face, it was God, saying that he was here. And so all the people that followed Jesus were considered pagans to the Jews. I don't know if pagans is exactly the right word, but they certainly... I mean, that's what it's here. Well, yeah, <laughs> but it's certainly people who were traitors, rebellious, people who were anti the real religion of Judaism. Right. And, and you know that we, we moved pagan... Uh, holidays and things like that to accept, uh, I mean, to try to talk the actual pagans into converting to Christianity. So we, we accepted Jesus' birthday because it used to belong to Mithra. Um, Jesus' birthday obviously is not in December because, hey, there were sheep, there were, there were shepherds, they were out there. So. Um, well, have you spent the December in the Holy Land before? Uh, actually, but, but I it, it's not necessarily as cold as we tend to think of December. I know, I know, I know. But, but, but I mean, that's been, that's been... All I can say is you, there have been some pagan traditions that have crept into the church. Right. And yes. it's read about impurity. Yes. What did it's you want to... talking about is during the, the taking the holidays of, of pagan people. Yeah. Because it's right. Which is true. But that's it's true. No, I mean, it has to, what, what we did in order to try to talk the actual pagan group. I, th I think really there's a better explanation than that. Well, it's something again, that's, that's what I was told here. <laughs> I know it, but it's Satan trying to infiltrate Christianity Could and direct it. I mean, body. these people here in the Church of England, they want to bring pagans into the church, mm -hmm. but they're compromising to do it. You know, where did the Christmas tree come from? Pagan. Exactly. And so we need, to, we need to understand that. Christmas is all about one present. Well, we've, you know, even though we're believers, did you ever grow up having Easter egg hunts? What does that have to do with Easter? Well, there are, no, there are pagan holidays. And we're going to talk about a female goddess from Babylon in just a minute when we get to the second part. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, what I'm trying to say is the Bible... Uh, does teach unity, 
but it's specifically unity of the Spirit. Unity within the, the Holy Spirit's uh, realm uh, found in Christ and God's Word. Maybe Ephesians 4 is the one that expresses this the best. It says, here is one body and one Spirit. Now, what's the body here it's talking about? The church. And the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, we've got to make sure we don't make a mistake. All is referring to what? The church. Everyone in the church. The Holy Spirit is in all. And that's this concept of unity. Unity with other non-believers is not what Scripture teaches. In fact, we'll talk about that more in just a second. But the spirit of truth does not wed with the spirit of error. Therefore, truth must always take priority over unity. And that's what we've got to remember when we're dealing with interfaithism. We never compromise on truth for the value of unity. We cannot do that. If we do that, we compromise. And if we compromise, we lose our strength. Mark. If you compromise truth, it is no longer truth. Exactly. So, there can... Somebody will say, well, now wait a second. Can't there be multiple truths? No. There's only one truth. What did Jesus say? Not only said he was the way, he said he was the truth. So, look at something here. It's a verse we all know. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, My people are called by my name, if my people called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This call is made specifically to God's people, that is who are called by His name. Was it a call to those who worshipped Baal, Asherah, or Molech? Was it a call to those who worship Allah, Buddha, Krishna, the Force, or any other God? See, God didn't send Moses and the nation of Israel to the promised land with the goal of uniting with the pagans of Canaan. Like he said, destroy them all. However, if they responded like Rahab did, what would happen then? They would be brought in. Rahab was saved. She was an inhabitant of Jericho. But she, you know, had heard about the one true God and she wanted to serve him. And what happened? She was allowed, she came in, she married a man, and between that man and the man she married, and Rahab, they had a son. And eventually, you know who came from that son? David. And who came from David eventually? Jesus Christ. Rahab, the Canaanite. She was a prostitute. Now, besides that, when Jesus came, this is a perfect example. When Jesus came to Israel, there were these four warring factions among the Jewish religion. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, and there were the Herodians. By the way, I love the Essenes. Why? Because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know, they just found some more. Two more books. It's just getting better and better. Uh, like I said this morning, the only thing that could be better is if we could find the ark. But I do. Okay, I actually do too. Uh, if there's a guy from our class 
who went up there. His name's John Morris. Uh-huh. They were trying to find it. They th- he thought they were getting close, and then he got struck by lightning. And he now has to walk with crutches. Serious. But you ought to, if you ever meet John Morris, he comes to the class every Sunday morning and ask him about it. Pretty cool story he'll tell. You remember that movie, though, that yes. when we were younger? Hey, where they were, yeah, I, I truly, that movie cinched into my brain, and I truly believe it. Now, when Jesus came, he didn't seek to unite these different sects. Neither did the apostles hold uh, interfaith meetings with the pagans of Greece or Rome. No. They were all about uncompromising on the truth that God had given them. Now, I can, I'm going to share with you a verse in just a second that affected me. I remember two things very clearly. I can remember driving my little car up from Austin after I graduated from law school. And I could see, I got to where I could see clearly the outline of Dallas, downtown Dallas. And I can remember saying to myself, Doug, you have arrived. Not too long after that, I realized, yes, I'd arrived at the bottom. But as I was making career decisions, I came across this verse. And I said, you know, my understanding of this verse just can't be right. It just can't be right. Because it is way too limiting. I know men in our church who are partners in large law firms. And everybody in that law firm are certainly not believers. Let me show you this verse. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. This is God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. Now, the first part of that is the key verb here. Do not be bound together. If you were reading it in the King James, it would be, do not be unequally yoked. And I can remember asking God, you know, God, I really couldn't work at one of these major law firms? Is that what that thing is saying to me? That can't be right. At the time, Joel Gregory was the pastor of this church. I went to him, I said, does the Greek really say this? Yeah, it does. I said, well, he probably doesn't know what he's talking about. So I went over to Crystal College, and I talked to Paige Patterson. And I talked to Paige Patterson, I said, now, this doesn't really say this, does it? This doesn't really mean, yeah, Doug, it does. And I said, okay, okay, do not be bound together. I looked at this verb, and let me tell you, this verse is in a setting that is very, very important for us to see. Number one, it talks about business, as we're going to see in a minute. Number two, it talks about marriage, as we're going to see in a minute. Number three, it can talk about a joint enterprise. You see, when I think about business, think about a law firm. They have partners or they have shareholders. You shouldn't be bound together with unbelievers. But you can also say have a joint venture where, say, you and somebody else just buys a piece of property. You're you're not involved in business other than that one thing, a joint venture. But that would be included. That's what it means. I should never marry anyone that's not a believer. I should never be in business with anyone who's not a believer. 
Now that's kind of hard, isn't it? Will God bless an obedient servant? I think He will. Daniel. Have you ever tried to plow a field with a bull and a cow? No, but I have a feeling it won't work. It doesn't work because they keep going in circles. Yes, be unequally yoked. You look at this word, partnership. In the King James, it's fellowship, right? But I think the better translation here is partnership. If you look at your notes, I've got these words here for you because the next word is a word we should understand. This word partnership is metake, and it means a sharing or a communion or a fellowship. This concept of a sharing is the primary meaning, and I think that's the best one to understand. So you can say it's in a business, you could put it in marriage, you could put anything else. The next word, fellowship down here in the King James, is a word you've all heard before, koinonia, which is basically a fellowship. It's also used for the church. So, in effect, it's also saying here that you don't want to be in a church that has unbelievers. Oh, you mean we don't want interfaithism? No. This verse says no. Stay away. Don't do it. It's not right, and it will be a problem. You see, while the traditions of men in a church become relics of a passing age, the gospel is always relevant. The scripture is always relevant. It doesn't change. Look at this passage a second in Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, said for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now what is that phrase, the power of God for the salvation of everyone? What is he saying is the power of God? The gospel message. You mean the message contained in the Bible has power in and of itself? Yes. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Are you saying this book is animated? It has some kind of life of its own? Are you really saying that? I am. Oh, that would be Hebrews 4.12, wouldn't it? I mean, let me look at Hebrews 4.12. That man has quoted it exactly right. Let me read it to you again, just so you see. It's, it's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living. That's the word zoe. It means having life. And active. This is the word that means to be about business. To take It's the Greek word energes. What do we get our English word from that? Energy. It's, it's, so it's having energy, so to speak. Active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and being able to judge the thoughts and intentions. What does that? The Word of God. The Scripture. It has its power of its own. And we need to understand that here. And that is the power that we have. There is no compromise or middle ground for God's truth. Now, am I saying all compromise is bad? No. I mean, my business is all about compromise. But compromise of spiritual values, scriptural mandates, biblical issues is no. What is the question? Doesn't matter what the question is. If you're going to compromise any of those things, the answer is no. I will not compromise. Compromise destroys the believer. And so that's what Satan wants to do. There's no middle ground. Synergy, interfaithism are tools of the Antichrist to create a one world religion. 
And we need to know that's what's coming. And actually, I hope it's coming very soon. Because that means I'll be gone. I just heard a report about a thing they can inject into you that will not only tell them where you are, it will be your source of funds. And if you are doing things that you shouldn't be doing, they just can cut off your funds. And you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't hold a job. That sounds awful much to me like Revelation chapter 13. Yeah, well, let's do this. To reinforce that statement, there is a patent on that particular item. Is there a number assigned to that patent? Oh my. Oh my. All right. By Bill Gates. But there's something else I want to talk about tonight before we finish. That is more of a problem than I knew. Now, I want to show you some pictures tonight so you can get an idea of what's going on. Um, there have been some pictures that somebody in my home edited out. And so you won't be seeing those. But she thought, you know, that Chris, with his delicate sensibilities, you know, we would want... Yes, I know. Female deities. Is female deity something that's involved in the church today? Do we, do we really think that? Let's look at some of the... Uh, I, I, this is an old... The way they used to picture female de deities in the first century. Then they had one like this. Oh, this is more of a Hindu female deity. Then the Buddhists came up with one like this, which you, I guess would say was a little more attractive. And then this one came. And uh, you notice that's a five-point star on her head. It's a starfish. And you notice how her background is in the water? We're going to see that a lot. Because you start seeing some of the pictures of some of these female deities and what they're saying, and it absolutely infuriates me. Let's look at a couple more. This one is the Asherah, which is a female goddess that was worshipped at the time when the Amorites and Canaanites were invaded by Israel when they came into the Promised Land. It was then a problem for Israel from then on. And she has made an unbelievable comeback. But she doesn't look like that anymore. Let me show you what Asherah looks like now. Asherah, one of Sophia's many faces. You think that mind Sophia, that name Sophia in mind will come back to her. So that's Asherah. What about this one? Now you can recognize who that is. Let me say, tell you what it says here. Asherah, she walks on the sea. She walks on the sea? Who walks on the water? Jesus does, not Asherah. Oh, but it gets worse than that. Look at the next one. Asherah, the Sikinah, the consort of Yahweh. Now that's the one that really got to me. There are those who want to say, first of all, that God is genderless. And that we should not consider generations neither male nor female. That's not what the scripture teaches. In fact, you look at this. What's the key word on this verse? Begotten. Now, Dan, you have five daughters, right? Four daughters. You know a little bit about for begotten, right? Chris, you have what? Three sons and a daughter or two sons and two daughters? Two and two. Two and two. You know a little bit about begotten, right? I only have two. 
But who's doing the begotting here? God. He was the male in the union between him and Mary that produced Jesus Christ. Everywhere in the scriptures, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, when it speaks of him, any pronoun it uses is masculine. Any adjective it uses is masculine. Any verb it uses is masculine. Now you see, in our language, English, you don't have masculine adjectives and masculine verbs. But you decline adjectives in both Hebrew and in Greek. And you have verbs that are set up a certain way if they're masculine, a certain way if they're feminine. So you can tell the subject of those verbs. You see, Greek is one of the most precise scientific languages ever created because Alexander and his tutor Aristotle wanted it exactly that way because he was all about when orders issued, there would be no variance. He wanted them obeyed exactly the way he issued them. And so this word here is key. And it shows that God is clearly a male. There's no questions about that. When the Lord God sent his people in the promised land, they came upon a people who was worshiping gods and goddesses, especially Baal and Asherah and Moloch. What did God tell them to do? Destroy every living thing. But they didn't obey. Because of that, these gods had been a snare to Israel for the rest of the time they were in. Now, let's think about this. Was, well, let me ask you this first. Do you think the gods or the goddesses were the biggest snare to Israel? Oh, very intuitive. Do you think, uh, let's see, first king was Saul. You think he had a problem with, with these idols? Not really. A little problem with witchcraft, not the idols. What about David? No, David didn't have a problem with these idols. He had a problem with some sin. Uh, and a real woman named Bathsheba, along with some others, I think. What about Solomon? Oh, he had a big problem. But he was wise, right? He wouldn't fall for an idol. What does it say here? He had 300 wives and 700 concubines, all of which, almost all of them, were, uh, brought their pagan uh, demon gods with them. For Solomon went after the Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcon, the detestable idol of the Amorites. He started worshiping. Now, you know, I've I got to tell you something. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this before. Some of you have heard this, but it's important to understand because we think, you know, Solomon, well, he built the temple. He wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. But I want you to see something about him that's important to understand. I want you to picture these three chairs. Three chairs right there. The one who sits in this first chair is a guy named David, the son of Jesse. He was a man who, did he make mistakes and sin? Yes, but he was committed to the Lord God. Then his son came along. And did David have a chance to build into his son godly principles? Yes, he did. And they worked together. Even in designing the temple, Solomon made a choice after he became king, and he made a choice to compromise. And so instead of sitting in the chair of commitment, he chose instead to sit in the middle chair of compromise. Then Solomon had a son, and his son was named Rehoboam. Did Rehoboam compromise? Oh no. Rehoboam rebelled. And he sat in the chair of rebellion. Where your 
grandson is going to sit or your child is going to sit depends a great deal on where you sit and what you do. And that's Solomon. Now, let's, I got off on that, but let's go on to the next one. One of the last kings uh, of any import was Manasseh. For he, Manasseh, rebuilt the high places where Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Hezekiah sat in the chair of commitment. Manasseh chose instead the chair of compromise. And his son, wow. Places where Hezekiah's father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab the king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. You see what's going on here. The falling for these female deities. You see, Satan wants to infiltrate and poison Christianity, the Christian faith. So, for a while, he took his instrument, Rome, and used them to persecute Christians. Uh, you know, Nero loved Christians because they burned well on, on a torch for him, and he would light his gardens with burning Christians. But they came to find out that the more they persecuted Christianity, the faster it grew. They couldn't understand that. So Satan changed his plan. And what he decided to do was to take Christianity political. And so Constantine, in 600 AD, decided that no longer are we persecuting Christians. In fact, we're all going to become Christians. Now, one of the marks he thought of becoming Christian was simply being baptized. And so he had all these legions. He needed to baptize them. He marched them by and to just throw water on them. And that's where it all started. But what came in when that happened was a female goddess. And who was that female goddess? Mary. Oh, yeah. All that was transferred to the Virgin Mary. Mary, exactly. And she came in. And if you look at the literature that I read this, uh, this last week uh, about that, she's referred to as the universal queen of heaven and earth. The universal queen of heaven and earth. You know, it's interesting. They don't see her now as sinning. But you read what she says in Mary's Magnificat. She says, this is the one who's going to save me from my sins. This harkens back to Satan's game plan of the Babylonian mystery religions. Uh, uh, of Samaras, the mother, and Tammuz, the son, involved in Nimrod. Do I have a picture of them? This is the Babylonian depictions. Here's two of them. Uh, archaeologists found of Samaramus and Tammuz. And now they built the mother-son cult and these Hebrew deities. Let's fast forward now to our time. Let's say we were to take a little road trip and we took it to the west. Let's say the left coast. And we came to San Francisco and it was a Sunday and we wanted to go worship. There's a church over there we could go to called Her Church. That, that's the name of it. Her Church. They worship Christ Sophia. Did you remember the picture I put up of Asherah? Christ Sophia is what they call her. And they worship the great mother of us all. Have you ever heard someone closing a prayer referring to God as a female? That is something that's relevant. Now, does that really go on with, or is this a little isolated pocket? Well, the latest I could find was a survey that was done in 2007. That was the latest that I could find. In this survey, they started 
asking participants, do you participate in goddess worship? In the answer to this survey in America, 300,000 women answered in the affirmative. They participate in goddess worship. The surveyors say, and you know, I don't know, but they say that these women were all empowered women. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I mean women who are able to stand probably single or on their own two feet and were, you know, can take care of themselves. And they're worshiping. They also said these women were spiritual women. Now, that doesn't mean godly women or holy women, but they believed in, in spirit-type worship kind of things, maybe New Age. And they worship female goddesses. There was something to sweep in the church a while back called a book started as a book called The Shack, and then it became a movie. And what gender was God in that female? We need to recognize, and see, I'm slow in saying this, but this is something that's been going on for a long time, and that Satan uses. You know, Satan has recognized something, that men have a unique weakness to women. Now, you may be able to say, that women have a unique weakness to men. But he uses that many times. Started out in the garden. And it's still happening. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Write. The son of God. Who has eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Says this. I know your deeds. Your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. In other words, you've been improving in your obedience and in your faithfulness. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, we don't know for sure whether that's really her name. I have a hard time seeing anybody being named Jezebel, I guess. But they are people named Delilah. So, But anyway, or is that just a, a title kind of thing that was used to describe the type of woman she was. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now that sounds awfully strong to me. Especially certain parts of it. But maybe we ought to think this through just a second. Here's a woman that was leading division in the church. And they tolerated it. Yes, Gary. Yeah, I know in Jeremiah, the uh, remnant who are left in, uh, in Jerusalem... Uh, they were, they were, the wives were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. The husband supported that. Jeremiah told them that if you went to Egypt, you too shall die. And not a one will be left. Yep. Now, well, let me ask about this just a second. Because there was historical indications that goddess worship was going on in Thyatira. And that's where the prostitutes were. And that's how she was leading them into immorality. But... Isn't this rather strong to say, and I will kill her children with pestilence? Let me ask you something. If you have a woman that is this wicked, and she has a child right now who's very 
the very young, say one year old. Would that child be better off to grow up in that woman's home or to be killed by God? Because where is that child going to spend eternity? In heaven. You see, you know, at first I think killing children, that's horrible. But what if we're eliminating 80 years of life, but in eternity in God, not in hell? You look at it from that way, it seems a little different to me. Now, what this is, I think, Gary, you'll agree, a preparation for something that is coming. Let's look in the back part of the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 17, verse 3. And he carried me away, that's the angel, and the one's being carried away is John, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, was written a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. What is going on there? Here, the church, quote-unquote, one-world church that results from the inner faithism that's going to come during the tribulation is pictured as a woman. And she is riding the beast. And when the beast is through with her, then he will dispose of her. Fear. It's interesting that the symbol for Europe, we have to look up Europa, is a woman sitting on a beast. I know Wow. Well, we also know about what European capital, what it looks like. Tower of Babel. But anyway, let's, before we finish, have one final dose of truth here. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And there is no God but one. For even if there were... And this is, even if there were, this is, in the Greek, you have what's called conditional clauses, and you can have a conditional clause that you know the answer is yes, conditional clause you know the answer is no, or conditional clause where it could be yes or no. And here, this is no. We know, for even if there were so-called gods, and we know they're not, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one God, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. There's one God and one Father, and they are the Most High. And no one else exists in deity. Now, there are supernatural beings out there, Satan and his angels, but they're not God. Some people want to say, well, you know, the counterpart to God is Satan. No, Satan is not the counterpart to God. Satan is a created being. God is not. God can destroy Satan whenever he wants to. But he has a plan, and that's where it's going. This is our last lesson. Uh, I'm sorry that we missed some lessons that we missed, whether it's because of COVID or because of uh, ice or whatever else. But I appreciate you all come and share these things with me. And I'm glad that I got a chance to share them with you. And I'm sorry this is the last time, but you're always welcome to come Sunday morning if you want to. Dawn even came today, and Dan with her. Uh, we're starting a study in Daniel, 
And it's going to be quite a long study, but you're welcome to come if you want. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the time that we could meet. We know our nation is in serious trouble. And we know we as Christians have to stand up. But Father, I pray when the persecution comes, that we will refuse to compromise. That we will have already made up our minds that we're going to obey you, no matter what the cost. I pray, Father, that when those opportunities come for me, people will say, well, he radically obeyed his God. He obeyed immediately, without question, without condition. He obeyed completely and consistently and with a whole heart. Pray that you will give me the courage and the power to do that when the time comes. I pray the same thing for my friends here today, that you will encourage them to make the commitment to obey and not compromise, no matter what the cost may be. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.